Evidence and Answers. What are the essential doctrines of the Christian faith? We want to know the unshakable truth. But to know the truth, we must turn to the Word of God, for therein lies only truth. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. He's a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Here at Evidence and Answers, Pat has provided a wide assortment of different resources for you and your personal study time, from audio messages to books and articles. Many are from noted Christian scholars from here in the United States. Head on over to our website and check it out. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Without delay, here is Pat with the conclusion to his study regarding the essentials of the Christian faith. You know, God has blessed me with a particular ministry as a conference speaker and an author and a radio talk show host. I get to travel throughout the world and minister and serve the body of Christ nationally and internationally. And it's a great privilege to do so. But often in this line of work, I often run across and see believers and churches divided over theological issues. And unfortunately, most of these issues are on non-essential issues of the Christian faith. You know, I was at a particular conference, and two chaplains from a particular city refused to pray with me because when they discovered the particular seminary I graduated from, Dallas Theological Seminary, a great evangelical seminary, they refused to pray with me because we differed on our views regarding the second coming of Christ. At another time, I was in a particular church, and it was quite discouraging because the pastor denounced anyone who did not use his particular translation of the Bible. Now, granted, there are some paraphrase translations I would not recommend, But there are many good translations of the Bible out there. New American Standard, English Standard Version, the New International Version, the New King James, and and others. And he was denouncing those who didn't use his particular translation as heretics. Now, that can be discouraging to Christians to see Christians and churches divided over non-essential secondary issues. You know, the Bible talks about the unity of the believers. Jesus prayed that we may be one as he and the Father are one. Well, what are the essentials of the Christian faith upon which we should stand united and not compromise? And what are other issues which we can debate but not break fellowship over? What are the essentials of the Christian faith? You know, a particular guideline that has helped Christians throughout the centuries is this. On essentials, unity. On non-essentials, liberty and in all things, charity. Well, what are the essentials upon which we should not compromise? Well, this week we've been going through the 16 essentials of the Christian faith which every believer in Christ should be united upon. And what make of the essentials are those doctrines that are connected with the salvation message and uphold the gospel message. They focus on the nature of God, the nature of the gospel, and the word of God. So briefly, let me run through the 16 again. God's unity. There's one God who's created all things. The trinity or the triunity of God. Christ's deity. Fourth, Christ's humanity. Christ's virgin birth. Christ's sinlessness. Christ's atoning death. Christ's bodily resurrection. Human sinfulness the necessity of grace, the necessity of faith, 
Christ's bodily ascension, his priestly intercession for believers, his physical return or second coming, and the final to uphold this message, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible and the literal or proper interpretation of the Bible. These 16 are the essentials. They are found in the early creeds of the church. And these make up the essentials of the Christian faith, which should unite all believers. And these are the doctrines upon which we stand and we do not compromise. So when you're looking for a church or a missions or ministry organization, you should look to see that they uphold these 16 essentials. If you're looking for a particular Christian school or college to attend, you should make sure they hold to these 16 essentials. The other issues are non-essential or secondary issues. They're important. We should continue to discuss and debate that we can really refine our theology and really strengthen it, but we should remain unified on the essentials. We can debate the non-essentials, but we should not allow them to divide us. And unfortunately, many churches and Christians divide on non-essentials. And as I stated in my previous two shows that the greatest split in church history occurred in 1054 AD over a non-essential issue. And so it's important Christians know what the essentials are. Now the next essential that we're going to begin with is human nature or the sinfulness of man. The Bible teaches that we are sinners and sinful by nature. The fall in Genesis chapter 3 in which sin entered into creation and sin nature from then on has been transmitted to us through Adam and Eve. In Psalm 51 verse 5, David states that I was conceived in sin from my mother's womb. Well, how can David in his mother's womb as an embryo be guilty of sin? He hasn't done anything yet. He's not out of the womb. Well, it shows you he has a sin nature. We all have a sin nature that has been passed down to us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Romans chapter 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of God's perfect standard. Ephesians chapter 2, in the first three chapters, states that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We are sinful from nature. Therefore, we cannot save ourselves. And that's the importance of this doctrine. Recognizing our sinfulness, we realize we cannot be saved by our good works. And we realize that we are in need of God's grace and His provision. Now, this is what separates Christianity from the cults and the world religions. Many teach that man is good or neutral and therefore by his self-effort can save himself. Islam, Buddhism teaches that man is neutral or basically good and through their own good works they can attain enlightenment or salvation. And that's why in Islam they reject the death and resurrection of Christ because man can basically through obedience to the teachings of the Quran and the Hadith and obedience to the Sunnah, 
that Muslim men believe they can attain their salvation. Understanding that we are sinful by nature, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, no matter how many good works that we do, causes us to fall upon our knees and to understand our need for God's grace upon our lives and that we need a Savior. This leads to our next essential, the necessity of grace, of God's grace extended to us in order for us to have a relationship with Him and eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 states, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 2 Timothy 1, 9 states, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Our salvation is based on God's grace or His unmerited favor extended and given to us. There's nothing we could do to earn our salvation. Now, this is what separates Christianity from the kingdom of the cults. For example, Mormonism teaches that God's grace is not sufficient to attain full salvation. Former President, the late Spencer Kimball of the Mormon Church, stated this, One of the most fallacious doctrines originated by Satan and propounded by man is that man is saved alone by the grace of God, that belief in Jesus Christ alone is all that is needed for salvation. In other words, the salvation process begins with Jesus' work on the cross, but each person must complete the process of attaining the fullness of salvation by performing good works. In the Gospel Principles, the theology book that is given to Mormons as they begin to enter into Mormonism, states Jesus became our Savior and He did His part to help us return to our heavenly home. It is now up to each of us to do our part and become worthy of exaltation unto Godhood. Jehovah Witnesses teach that Christ's death takes away the sin of Adam. But now, Jehovah Witnesses have a chance to earn their salvation by a lifetime of good works. And that's good works done for the organization. It says here in their book, You Can Live Forever in Paradise on Earth. But in what special way does God expect lowest support be given? Like Jesus Christ and his early followers, they must be loyal spokesmen or proclaimers of God's kingdom. Well, that would be a deviation from one of the essentials of the Christian faith, that our salvation rests upon the atoning work of Christ alone and God's grace. Which leads to the next essential here, the necessity of faith. That's one of the cries of the early reformers. Faith alone, sola fide. We receive God's gracious provision and eternal life by receiving the gift of Christ's sacrifice through faith and faith alone. Not good works, that's the result of our belief, but eternal life comes when we receive it by faith and faith alone. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. 
For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And over a hundred times in the New Testament, salvation is said to be by faith and faith alone. Those who deviate from this would be rejecting an essential of the Christian faith. For example, Mormonism believes that faith is necessary for salvation, but not sufficient. The emphasis then becomes on good works which overshadow faith. One of the key theologians in the Mormon church is Bruce McConkie, and he writes in his theological work there, Mormon Doctrine, he writes this, Salvation in the kingdom of God is available because of the atoning blood of Christ, but it is received only on the condition of faith, repentance, baptism, and enduring to the end and in keeping the commandments of God. So faith alone is not enough. There must also be repentance, baptism in the church, and good works and enduring to the end. James Talmadge, one of the early Apostles of the Mormon Church says, Justification by faith alone is a most pernicious doctrine. Jehovah Witnesses teach that it's not faith alone, but faith and good works. They write in their work, You must have faith in Jehovah and in His promise. However, more than faith is needed, there must be works to demonstrate your true feelings about Jehovah. To get one's name written in that book of life will depend on works. So the cults teach what's called the Galatian heresy, which Paul denounced in the book of Galatians, that faith and works is required for salvation. One of the essentials of the Christian faith is that faith alone is enough to attain salvation. Faith in the death and resurrection and the atoning work of Christ is what is needed for salvation. The cults and others teach faith and good works, and that would be a departure from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Then our final two here are essentials regarding Scripture. And as I stated, essential number 15 is the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. What do we mean by inspiration of the Scripture? 2 Timothy 3.16 states, All Scripture is God-breathed, okay, or inspired by God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work. The Greek word there for God-breathed, theonuptos, means literally, breathed out by God. When we breathe on a mirror, we get fog. When God breathed, we got the Bible. All scripture is inspired by God. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 20 through 21 states, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, although humans spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the prophets and the apostles, though they were human, and humans are fallible. However, they were carried along or inspired by the Holy Spirit. And since God's Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, God is perfect. God does not err. He used 
fallible human beings, however divinely inspired by His Spirit, to write His inspired word. Jesus affirms the inspiration of the Bible. In Matthew 4.10, He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And He was referring to Scripture there. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, He said, Scripture is imperishable. And in John 17, verse 17, he said that Scripture is without error. Now, the importance of this doctrine, you can see, is quite apparent. You know, one does not need to believe and understand fully inspiration of Scripture. However, this is the Word of God. The Bible is the foundation for all that we believe. If there is no inspired Bible, there can be no assurance that we have indeed God's truth here written to be saved. Then we have the doctrine of inerrancy. What is the doctrine of inerrancy? Well, the doctrine of inerrancy states that in the original manuscripts, God's word is without error. Now, be careful to what I said. I said in the original manuscripts, okay? What we have in the Bible today that you're holding in your hand is copies of copies of copies of copies of copies handed down to us over several hundred years. Now, be careful in listening to what I am saying here. The copyists were very careful, very careful in copying the original manuscripts. However, they made some errors along the way. However, none of the errors are very significant. None contradict any major essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Most are quite minor. And what biblical scholars do is a process called textual criticism. We compare ancient manuscripts to see how accurate we are to the original. And our copies, we can guarantee, are over 97% accurate to the original. And the 3% that we are debating here really don't affect any major Christian doctrine here. Now, that's important to understand the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Unorthodox, there are groups that deny the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. For example, in the Mormon Church, in their Articles of Faith, it states, We believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Mormon Apostle Orson Pratt stated, Who in his right mind could for one moment suppose the Bible in its present form to be a perfect guide? Who knows that even one verse of the Bible has escaped pollution. Muslims follow in the same steps. Wherever the Bible contradicts the Quran, they state that is where the Bible has been corrupted. And other cult groups also do the same. Where our Bible contradicts their key doctrines, they say there that the Bible is in error or has not been properly transmitted to us. But from the thousands of manuscripts that we have, and you'll have to listen to my other shows on the accurate transmission of the Bible, we can be quite sure that what we have is very accurate to the originals and those who deny the accuracy of our Bibles today really don't have a good historical argument against it. But inspiration and inerrancy of the scriptures in their original text, they are inspired of God and without error. Now, the final doctrine is the literal interpretation of the Bible or the proper interpretation of the Bible. 
What do we mean by literal interpretation? Literal interpretation means to interpret the Bible according to the normal laws of language. In other words, we should interpret a text as a normal person would without looking for hidden meanings. In other words, we use what's called the historical, grammatical, contextual approach to interpretation of the Bible. Now, those may seem like big, intimidating terms, but you use that every day. When you read the newspaper, when you read that, you understand. You read the front page differently from how you read the comics, from how you read the editorials. You're using the proper technique of interpretation. You're interpreting it literally unless the context says otherwise. You read a history book different from the way you read a book of poetry. See, you interpret it literally according to the laws of interpretation unless the grammar says otherwise. So we interpret it in its historical context. We interpret it according to its proper grammatical sentence structure. And we interpret it according to its proper context in which the passage is found by using the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method of interpretation. You have what's called the literal interpretation of Scripture. The literal method does not eliminate figures of speech. We should interpret passages literally unless it does not make sense or contradict other major teachings of the Bible. And it's not difficult to figure out. You know, when Jesus says, I am the door, He's not saying he's a literal door on a hinge. He's speaking figuratively there. Or when the Bible says that God has eyes and arms and wings, such as Psalm 34, we know that that's speaking figuratively. Okay? So the literal method does not eliminate parables and allegories and figures of speech. When we deviate from the proper interpretation method, we end up with all kinds of strange interpretations. If you allegorize or you spiritualize improperly, you end up with all kinds of improper interpretations and improper theological views. Right? So the proper interpretation method is an essential in interpreting the Bible correctly. And you apply the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method every day in your reading. Now, those are the essentials of the Christian faith, upon which all Christians we should all stand united upon and not compromise. Let me go through that list one final time as we end this series. The 16 essentials are God's unity, the Trinity, Christ's deity, Christ's humanity, Christ's virgin birth, Christ's sinlessness, Christ's atoning death upon the cross, Christ's bodily resurrection, Human sinfulness, the necessity of grace, the necessity of faith, the bodily ascension of Christ, the priestly intercession of Christ, Christ's literal, bodily, physical second coming, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible, and the literal or proper interpretation of the Bible. These 16 make up the essentials of the Christian faith upon which all Christians throughout the ages have stood and upon which we do not compromise. You know, with major threats from the world today, such as radical Islam and new atheism, liberalism, and others, 
It's important, especially in the post-Christian culture we are today. We find ourselves in today. It's important that Christians, that we stand united on the essentials and we keep the unity of fellowship we have in Christ and that we do not divide on the non-essentials of the faith. So let's stand firm on the essentials of the faith. Let's clearly identify what they are and extend grace to one another on the non-essentials. Remember the principle which has guided Christians throughout the ages, which has always been a great guide for me as well. On essentials, unity. On non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. God bless you as you study His Word. And together, we continue to proclaim and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look forward to seeing you next time here on Evidence and Answers. This concludes Pat's study on the essentials of the Christian faith. If you missed any part of this study, head on over to our website at evidenceandanswers.org and under audio, search for the essentials of the Christian faith. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you would like to partner with us, please begin with prayer. And then to donate, log on to our website. Join us here next time or on the web for more evidence and answers.